Robert and the team of Brandon and Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly appearance. Despite the fact that it's the offseason, he doesn't care. He's the managing editor of Fangraphs. His name is Dave Cameron. And in this edition of Fangraphs Audio, uh, what Dave Cameron does, uh, as he does in all editions of Fangraphs Audio, is he analyzes all baseball. In particular, what you might call his focus uh, in this edition of Fangraphs Audio is offseason intrigue. Offseason intrigue. We're in the offseason. Intrigue is present. It's ubiquitous, uh, one might say, if one were the sort of person uh, who felt comfortable using the word ubiquitous in a sentence. That is pure speculation on my behalf. Uh, what is an actual fact, however, is that today, Monday, uh, at 5 p.m., is the deadline uh, is the deadline for those players who were extended qualifying offers by their teams, the 13 players who were extended qualifying offers uh, for them either to accept or deny uh, said offers. And uh, it's, it's uh, entirely possible that all 13 of those players will, in fact, deny the qualifying offers. I asked Cameron about some of them specifically, some of those players specifically, uh, what it is they're thinking and what their prospects are. So it's the situation with uh, Atlanta and their new stadium and Ryan Hannigan's fate. Who can forget Ryan Hannigan? Who wants to forget Ryan Hannigan? Not us right now. Um, let's move on to that conversation with Dave Cameron. It, it, uh, it is Fangraphs Audio. It does feature Dave Cameron, and it begins right now. Good, as it frequently does. Listen, um, um, you have uh, just tweeted out a message. Um, you've uh, sort of uh, in a what we might call an uh, apostrophic message uh, addressed addressed to cities, Dave Cameron. Uh, yes, all 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 of the cities. All of the cities. Uh, you say cities, stop doing this to yourself. Uh, and this is in response to a report uh, that uh, the Atlanta Braves uh, will be moving out of Atlanta proper. It seems. After just what uh, 16, 17 years in uh, at the present Turner Field? Well, they've been there 16 now. They're not going to move until 2017 because they've got a 20-year lease, and so they have to fill those 20 years. So they're going to spend 20 years in their in their stadium and then go to a new one. Is the plan? That's the announcement, at least. Okay. So, uh, well, this raises a number of things. First of all, it's surprising, I suppose. Uh, well, I, maybe it's not yes. surprising in a larger way, but it was not an announcement that people necessarily expected. Correct. I don't think anyone knew that the Braves were working on a new stadium. This is the kind of thing that usually gets leaked, and uh, the Braves kept this very close to the vest. Okay, so there's that. that there's that element. Um, uh, there's also the element of, uh, regarding the length of the um, of Atlanta's current tenure in that stadium, which, which as we said, uh, 20, 20 years ultimately. Um, yeah, at the end of the at the end of their move, it will be twenty years. I have to think now. Of course, we're sort of in an unprecedented um, place right now in terms of uh, baseball as it as, it's, uh, as it regards stadia, because we had there was a huge bo- booming bu- uh, building boom, I should say, that began what at the uh, sort of at the beginning of the '90s or whenever Camden Yards was built. Yeah, basically, Bud Selig made it as part of his legacy to go around the country and kind of help major league owners. Uh, extort new stadiums from all of their cities, and so he has just systematically worked his way throughout baseball until everybody gets a new stadium. Right, with the exception, uh, of course, 
Other the the Oakland the Oakland A's the, the the last one standing trying to get a new stadium. Right, and then and then and then uh, Boston and uh, right, and but but even like you know Fenway Park was significantly renovated and modernized, and uh, it is not the same. I mean, it's the same address and the same structure, but it's not the same stadium it was ten years ago. Right, it's been uh, overhauled, um, and of course the, 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 I guess the Red Sox and the Cubs. Both had the advantage, and you could argue maybe a couple other clubs might have too. Maybe maybe the Yankees would have, um, you know, maybe the Tigers would have theoretically been able to sell um, the age of the stadium as part of its allure. Um, yes, but only the Cubs and the Red Sox obviously are still able to do that, and I guess maybe the Dodgers because right. Dodger Stadium it, is that next one in line now. Yeah, I, I think it's going to be hard for Atlanta to sell fans on come back to the memories of 1997, <laughs> uh, the good old days of 20 years ago, and remember that you paid hundreds of millions of dollars for this stadium to be built uh, as you go pay for another one of us to get built uh, out in the suburbs. Right. Okay. So, so, so uh, as I mentioned, this is um, we're sort of in a new era of baseball stadium right now, and this is a stadium that was built less than 20 years ago now. And the Braves are already yep. moving out for it. What are the sort of what are the stated purposes for the move, if there are any thus far? Well, I mean, so the unstated purpose is uh, to get someone else to pay for it. Like, I mean, this is why every city and every team does this thing is because they the Braves don't want to put money into their own stadium if they don't have to. And you know, I don't want to vilify the Braves too much here because this is every major corporation in America now. Uh, you know, making deals with the municipalities in order to get. Uh, low taxes or free land or, um, you know, some kind of incentive to bring jobs to their area. Uh, and, you know, this is Dell. I mean, you know, every company in the world with a manufacturing plant is making these same kinds of deals. Um, but, you know, basically the Braves are a private company that is intent on making profit. One good way to make profit is to have someone else build you a nice uh, facility to work in. And uh, that's what the Braves are, are, are basically working to do is getting Cobb County to build them a new stadium. Uh, they won't have to put as much money into as if they had to put their own money into, into Turner Field. Uh, cause you know, it's pretty good that the city of Atlanta is not going to be interested in just throwing, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars at renovations to make Turner Field better. Uh, so the Braves have, have found an alternative or at least found some leverage, uh, in, in Cobb County. Uh, their reasons are essentially that, the, you know, there's a parking problem. It's not in a great area in terms of there's no access to uh, rapid transit, um, and it's, uh, you know, maybe in a, a less than ideal geographic location. Of course, the Braves are the ones who chose that location. Yeah, th- right. So that would be, uh, so that's a strange argument, I, I, I guess. I, I, I mean, I think that if, right, if you're looking for the rationale behind the choice, it's that if you can get a nice thing for free, um, then yeah. why not, then why not do it? Right. I mean, if we, so if we take like the morality and the ethics out of this, uh, the Braves are doing what every, you know, person or industry in the world would do when provided an opportunity to receive hundreds of millions of dollars in subsidies. I, you know, I think, you know, I don't know if you remember the crazy guy who used to be on TV with the selling the book covered in question marks. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And he was like, get your free money now, right? Like, whatever that guy's name was. Yeah. Uh, you know. People would buy his book because there were ways that they could get free money for grants and loans and all those kinds of things. This is like, you know, uh, the Braves are buying the book on how to get free money from a, uh, from a municipality. There's a way to do it, and it's been very clearly effective in other cities. Uh, it's probably going to work. Uh, you know, if you're a privately funded or a private, you know, 
entity focused on maximizing your profits, and there's a path to you getting a couple hundred million dollars for free, you're probably going to take it. And so on the other half of this, uh, within municipalities, in this case, I guess, whatever the whatever the government of Cobb County is, however that's organized, uh, what is their yeah. incentive precisely? Well, usually what happens is these uh, counties or cities will trot out some kind of economic impact study that shows that, you know, X number of people are going to work at the stadium, people are going to pay, uh, you know, X number of dollars in order to attend the stadium, and we'll be able to tax all those revenues. So there's going to be all these people traveling in, they're going to be staying at hotels, they're going to be eating at restaurants, and then they'll run out some figure that says, like, you know, per year we're going to make $100 million in extra revenues uh, from having the stadium, but these economic impact studies are bunk. They, right. they, don't, they don't actually reflect reality. Uh, what actually happens is people who would have gone out to eat uh, just go out to eat to the ballpark instead of to some other restaurant in that county, and the, the county sees no real benefit. Yeah, I'm guessing Andrew Zimbalist didn't write those particular economic reports. No, right. And I think you know pretty much every serious economist who's ever studied the issue has come up to the same conclusion. These things suck for the city or for the county or whoever ends up paying the bill. Uh, it's basically just a subsidy. You're uh, bringing a team and paying for a vanity uh, to have them associated with your area and to get your name mentioned on TV sometimes. Uh, but in terms of actual economic impact, you're much better off, uh, you know, building schools or firehouses or things that are actually in need uh, in order to help the, the quality of life of your residents. Uh, rather than you know just giving a bunch of money to a corporation. So it's a it's a question of prestige then really is the incentive on the the local municipality. Yeah, this this is basically the uh, you know county level way of buying a Gucci handbag, right? Like you could you, know, you could buy a cheaper handbag and it would work just fine, but now you get to have like some kind of label on it and you get to say, hey, look at us, we have we have this awesome thing, uh, we have this luxury item, we have a status symbol. The, the sports teams, publicly funded stadiums for sports teams, are basically a status symbol. Okay. And will they be called the Cobb County Braves in, in this case? No, but there actually has been a suggestion in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution that the Braves will take this opportunity to completely reboot the franchise and potentially rename and rebrand and re-logo, which I think, you know, would potentially be a uh, positive side effect <laughs> yeah, of right. uh, maybe not a, a positive thing. But, uh, you know, having the Braves... Uh, you know, change their name to something that is uh, less controversial, probably not the worst thing in the world. Yeah, right. Has Cleveland discussed uh, moving into a new stadium recently? Because <laughs> they could utilize No, that. no, I think, uh, <laughs> yeah, I think that uh, my guess is that the Braves, the, or the Indians' real problem is their logo, not so much everything else. So right. if the Indians just, you know, had a new logo, I think they'd be okay. Right, right, okay. Uh, and is this going to affect, uh, I mean, from what we... In terms of precedent, we see teams move into new stadiums, and uh, uh, anecdotally, at least for, for my part, I, it seems that uh, they increase their payrolls when they do that. Um, is that going to be a thing that this is going to allow the Braves to do, or or um, will this be sort of a lateral move in terms of finances? Yeah, I mean, usually these things come with payroll spikes, but often, like, moving from an old stadium to a new stadium comes with a payroll spike because the old stadium was dilapidated and they couldn't draw any fans, the Braves stadium is not dilapidated, and they haven't had a huge attendance problem, uh, at least not relative to what they should expect in their new stadium, because it's going to house 10,000 fewer people. So they're actually decreasing their revenue potentials in terms of overall attendance uh, by moving into something smaller, which suggests that they're not expecting a huge swath of people to start showing up to the games. Uh, I do think there's probably a side 
uh, cause here is that the Braves have the worst television deal in all of baseball. They're, uh, they have a long-term ironclad contract that they cannot get out of that pays them something like 10 or 20 million dollars a year. When other teams are renegotiating TV deals that give them hundreds of millions of dollars per year. So the Braves are basically locked out of a significant revenue stream that their competitors are, are locked into. Um, so, you know, this might be the Braves way of saying, well, if we can't get any TV money, we're going to get our money somewhere else. Okay. Um, and and I, I'm going to assume, uh, because all stu- uh, stadiums have gone this way, that uh, luxury boxes will be uh, – there will be even more of them than there are at Turner Field presently. I think it's just going to be one big luxury box. <laughs> yeah. right? but, like The whole thing is just going to be encased in glass and have uh, uh, waitresses <laughs> serving you food, and, and there will be no actual seats. It's just going to be a 40,000-seat luxury box. Okay. All right. Um, all right. So the, we've tended to that. Uh, that that was with regard to your fight. Uh, listen, um, uh, thing, there is a thing today. There is a baseball-related thing today. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that today is the deadline for players who have been extended qualifying offers. The 13 players who have been extended qualifying, uh, qualifying offers, I believe there's a deadline today, perhaps at 5 p.m. Eastern, for them either to uh, accept or deny those qualifying offers. Does that sound Does that sound right? That, that is correct, yes. <laughs> okay. All right. Good. Uh, yeah, I read that on the Internet, so I was assuming it was. Uh, I believe, I don't know if this is the most... Surprising? I don't know if there's any surprising. Well, here, let me first read Ben Nicholson-Smith. You're familiar with him, Ben Nicholson-Smith? I am, yes. Yeah. I have hung out with him in multiple winter meetings locations. A, uh, a stand-up guy, I think we can all agree. Yeah, a man yes, because he's very tall. Man, yep, and a man with a head on his shoulders, uh, largely due to the absence of a yeah. neck. He yeah, has no, he has no neck, sure. yeah. Um, a serious accident, but he suggests that uh, he would not be surprised if he saw all 13 of those players who were extended qualifying offers, he would not be surprised if all 13 of them declined uh, declined them. Is that a thing that would surprise you? No, I think that's the expectation, is that no one's going to take it. There has not been any suggestions that any of them are seriously considering taking it. The only person who's been linked to accepting the qualifying offer in any serious way is Curtis Granderson. Um but even that is, he's expected to decline and be able to sign a multi-year deal. Uh, I think, you know, there's probably one or two free agents that you can make a case that they, in, if the market was rational, this, they should have to accept the qualifying offer because they're not worth giving up a pick and giving a better contract to than the 14 million they've already been offered. Uh, Kendris Morales would probably be at the top of that list. Uh, but it, you know, it seems like baseball is flooded with money. Uh, agents are, um, pretty good at their jobs and they're going to be able to convince uh their their clients that they can do better than this 114 and they're all going to go look for multi-year riches uh that doesn't mean that someone won't end up like kyle loesch and sit out the market all winter with no offers but it seems like all of them are going to take that chance and what did loesch eventually end up with i forget he got 333 uh, about a week before spring training so he did do better than the qualifying offer uh and you know i think realistically for kyle loesch he probably wasn't ever going to do that much better than 333, so waiting all winter didn't really hurt him, other than the fact that he, you know, I mean, maybe this is a benefit to Kyle Loesch. He missed all of spring training. Uh, you know, <laughs> he might consider that a, a nice little vacation uh, and, and a perk, in fact, instead of a instead of a, a deficit. But I think, you know, most players probably would have rather had a full, uh, you know, six weeks to warm up and get ready and, uh, you know, bond with their teammates and all that stuff. So, you know, there was some... 
uh, cost to Loesch to having to wait that long in order to get his deal. Um, and I do think, you know, there's something to be said for the fact that, you know, teams always need starting pitching. There's always injuries that happen in spring training that open up needs. I think that's a more viable route for a pitcher, even to wait into the part of, into part of the regular season for a position player like, say, Kendris Morales. It's pretty unlikely that, you know, a team's DH is just going to blow out his knee or, you know, uh, there's going to be a huge opening for a designated hitter right before the start of the season. I don't know that waiting for a hitter makes as much sense as waiting for a pitcher. Okay, uh, so just a couple of the players who, um, who were extended to qualifying offers, just to, to give them a, a quick look. Um, well, you mentioned Kendris Morales. He was extended the qualifying offer by the Mariners, uh, who seem to be perhaps the only team that thinks he's worth that much money. Is there any chance that another team signs him? And if the Mariners sign him, is it just to a multi-year contract for about the same amount uh, per year as the as the qualifying offer? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a chance that another team signs him. I mean, you could look, squint, and see that the Orioles could really use, you know, a hitter, even though they haven't tr- generally spent money in the free agent market. Uh, you know, they could use a, a switch hitter with some power who gets on base a little bit, so he fits a need for them. The Rangers could theoretically need uh, a guy like Morales if Nelson Cruz leaves and they lose out on Brian McCann and uh, and Ka- Carlos Beltran. Uh, you know, the Yankees could theoretically use a DH who can hit. Uh, there are teams out there that you could say, you know, it makes some sense for them to bid on Morales, uh, but I think he's probably like the third or fourth option for all of these teams. And so there's no way his market's going to move fast. He's going to have to sit around and wait for everyone else to sign and then market himself to the team who got no one. If a team signs a player to uh, to a multi-year deal, um, it's, it's the same player to to whom they extended a qualifying offer. Do they lose a draft pick to themselves? Well, they do uh, <laughs> in that they're, it's an opportunity cost, right? Like if you don't sign the player and the player signs elsewhere, you get a draft pick. You, you will select somewhere in the 25 to 35 range, uh, depending on how many first-round picks are, are lost by the uh, team signing free agents. But, um, you know, you'll get an end-of-first-round selection, uh, if you re-sign him, you don't get that. So you do actually lose a draft pick for re-signing your own player. Uh, people don't see it that way, and they often talk about how, oh, yeah, you can re-sign your own guy without losing a draft pick. But, you know, it's like forfeiting a Christmas present. Like, if you tell all your people to not get you a Christmas present, uh, you have essentially uh, given away something that you would have had otherwise. <laughs> you know, and so even if you didn't already have it, if you didn't possess it and you didn't, you know, like taking something out of your house and giving it away – it's basically the same thing as rejecting the uh, someone else giving you something. It has the same effect. Yeah, right. Okay. Uh, Hiroki Kuroda, I believe, accepted the qualifying offer last year. Did he not? I believe he did not. I think he signed for $15 million, which oh, okay. was just slightly more than the, the qualifying offer. I think he turned it down and then signed for something very close to it. Right. I, I mean, so if we if he rejects the qualifying offer presently, do, do we imagine a very similar sort of uh, sequence of events for Kuroda? I think it wouldn't shock me if he got two years this time around, depending on what he wants to do. I mean, if he wants a two-year deal, I think he has now established himself as a good enough pitcher. We have a dog situation here, Cameron? No, actually, the dog is uh, is at the, at the vet right now getting spayed. So. Oh, whoa. Wow. Yeah, not, not a good day for the dog. <laughs> yeah, it's going to leave him. It literally is going to leave a mark. I, I assume. I don't know. I don't know yeah. the science behind it, but yes, uh, yeah, no, the, a big scar. <laughs> well, that's a surprise. Yeah, wake up, that happens. Um, 
Uh, okay, well, anyway, so there's no dog situation. But uh, so you think Kuroda has established himself to the point now where someone's like, yeah, well, you, we think you'll be okay for two years or at least good enough for one year that we'll give you a second? Yeah, I think if Kuroda wants a second year, I mean, he, you know, he's had to sign a series of one-year contracts, partly because he's getting older, but I think he's proven that he's not getting really any worse. Uh, and at this point, he is one of the best pitchers on the market. The, the teams are exploding with money. I think a team that wanted to try and lure him away from the Yankees would happily offer him two guaranteed years if he wants to guarantee himself two years. Okay, all right. Um, another player you did happen to mention was... Uh, Nelson Cruz, I believe, uh, shortly before you and I began speaking, uh, 11 a.m. Eastern, Nelson Cruz, uh, reports uh, surfaced that Nelson Cruz had already informed the club that he won't accept a qualifying offer. Uh, he had until 4 or 5 p.m., 4 p.m. local. Uh, so he's not, he's not, uh, he rejected it. It was expected, but, um, there may be questions, especially if there's a free agent, or sorry, if there's a draft pick tied to signing him. Uh, that uh, he may not do excellently, or at least oughtn't necessarily do excellently on the on the open market. Yeah, I think Cruz has the skill set of that is generally overrated in today's games, and that he hits home runs and drives in runs, and he's seen as a middle of the order right-handed power hitter. And there's not a lot of those guys out there anymore. Uh, not surprisingly, he's been linked to the Phillies, uh, and the Phillies seem like the kind of team that would do this, <laughs> giving up a draft pick in order to overpay the decline years of Nelson Cruz. <laughs> uh, so you know, I, I I think that there's a bunch of teams out there who probably view Nelson Cruz in a very favorable light and think that he's a very good player and they're going to be very disappointed when they actually have to watch it play every day. He, uh, because he does things that uh, show up in the in the box score. It, it's, it's funny because at one point, or maybe it's still the case, players were lionized for doing things that didn't show up in the box score, uh, or that was a line yep. you would hear. Another sort of player that is lionized is one who's... who's, who's n- Performance is uh, is a little bit misleading because it does show up in the box score. That's Nelson Cruz. Yeah. I mean, I guess it depends what sort of box score you have. Right. I think one, one of the interesting things is people will give a lot of lip service to paying attention to everything about baseball that is not home runs and RBIs in that they'll say, you know, we really want guys who play the game the right way and are good on defense and you need, you know, Team first guys, you, you know, they have all these cliches. And then when it comes to free agency, they just want to pay for overs and RBIs. I mean, I think the, the market has been very clear that power hitters, uh, middle of the order guys, these are seen as like the foundations of your, of your offense. They're kind of treated like quarterbacks are in football, where they are by far the most important kind of player. And they get paid more money than, you know, leadoff hitters or, um, comparable middle infielders who, you know, get their value through playing a position where offense is scarce. Those guys just don't get paid the same level uh, as guys who hit the ball in defense. And, you know, it's shallow and it's silly, but it happens. And and major league teams are still not immune to um, overpaying guys who hit the ball a long way simply because they look impressive. Well, so so tell me how that's the, how Nelson Cruz's situation is uh, similar to or different than Carlos Beltran's. Because Beltran is a player who used to do – I mean, he used to do everything – um, but some of the things he did um, w- were um, – uh, some of the skills he had were skills for which you were not necessarily paid very well in terms of uh, being able to take a walk, playing elite elite defense. Uh, now he doesn't really – well, he takes, he takes less walks and he barely he – he probably shouldn't play defense, I guess is the thing. But he's, uh, he's probably going to turn down his qualifying offer uh, uh, if he hasn't already. And uh, he should do – I guess he's looking for three or four years. I don't know if that's a possibility. 
Yeah, I mean, I think the difference between Carlos Beltran and Nelson Cruz is that Carlos Beltran's really good. Like, Nelson Cruz is run, regularly run on base percentages in the 310 to 320 range while playing half his games in Texas. Uh, Carlos Beltran, you know, doesn't take as many walks as he used to. That could just be a one-year spike. But, uh, you know, I think even with his decline, you're still expecting 350 to 370 on base and probably similar amounts of power. Maybe not quite as many home runs, but a few more doubles. Uh, Beltran's just a, a better hitter than Nelson Cruz. Uh, his, his UZR last year was absolutely atrocious, and perhaps he should, you know, spend more time at designated hitter, but, you know, it's been, uh, better than that in previous years. I don't think we are at a point where we should say Beltran should never play the field again. Um, but so even if he's a below average defender, he's a really good hitter. He's a switch hitter. Um, you know, there's a lot of value in Carlos Beltran that Nelson Cruz just doesn't have. Nelson Cruz is a slightly above average hitter who does nothing else well. Carlos Beltran is a very good hitter who does nothing else really well. <laughs> it, this, did he lose his speed? Was it with all that knee knee jump towards the end of his uh, Mets tenure? Yeah, he's had uh, some significant knee problems that have really slowed him down. Okay, all right. Uh, just curious because at one point, at one point, I think wasn't he the uh, like the most efficient base dealer ever in baseball history? Yeah, he was a super high uh, efficiency runner who would steal 20, 30 bases a year and hardly ever get caught. Uh, one of the best base runners of his era, but not so much anymore. Not so much anymore. Okay. I mean, but, still still a very good base runner in terms of first to third, second to home, that kind of thing, but he's not going to steal bases too often. Okay. Um, and Well, here, so here's a totally different sort of player than um, – well, uh, I mean, different than, than Beltran and certainly different than Cruz – um, this, he's on the other end of the, the pay spectrum as well, likely, and that's Ryan Hannigan. Uh, Ryan Hannigan yeah. likely will not be a red. Um, it's almost sure because I guess uh, Cincinnati went out and signed Brian Pena, who uh, probably has his virtues as a player. Um, the curious thing about that being, though, that Ryan, Ryan Hannigan uh, has provided real value um, at catcher during his career, um, and likely will not necess- likely will not be fetching a lot in um, in free agency. Or I guess is he is he a trade commodity at this point? Yeah, he's arbitration eligible, and he's going to get about two and a half million dollars in salary this winter, most likely. Okay, right. And uh, the the comp that you brought up is uh, Gerald Saltamacchia. Not necessarily that their skills are comparable, but um, it's you know it's entirely possible that. Uh, Ryan Hannigan could be worth more in terms of wins to his team in 2014 uh, for, uh, you know, for a fraction of the cost, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I guess the thing with Hannigan is he's he performs really well in things that we think we can measure about catcher defense, right? So he's really good at shutting down the running game. His career caught stealing percentage is 40%, which is, you know, Yadier Molina levels. Uh, and it's not just the pitchers that he's catching. I mean, you know, I think he's uh, caught for some guys who historically aren't good at throwing out base stealers when he's not behind the plate. Uh, Hannigan's very, very good at that kind of thing. He's very good at blocking pitches. He hardly ever allows pass balls and wild pitches. He blocks balls in the dirt very well. And, you know, depending on which framing report you're going to use, he appears to be very good at turning balls into strikes and, and convincing the umpires to give a more generous strike zone when he's behind the plate. He's very good at receiving. Um, these aspects make him fairly valuable in that he's one of the best defensive catchers in baseball. Uh, and in some years, uh, not last year, but in previous years, he's actually been a decent hitter. He draws some walks. He doesn't have a lot of power, but he never strikes out. Um, so he's kind of like a Marco Scudero who can catch, uh, you know, and he has no, he has no power whatsoever. And 
I think there's some thought that uh, his walk rate's been inflated by hitting in the bottom of lineups in the National League where the pitcher would be behind him and he'd get some intentional walks or unintentional intentional walks. Uh, and maybe that walk rate won't continue uh, if there if it is a situation change and he moves to the American League. Um, but, you know, I think this is kind of a cop-out, too. I mean, I think what we've seen is, um, you know, Hannigan has drawn some walks uh, uh, even in situations where teams weren't incentivized to put him on base. Uh, he's got a good eye. He, he makes really good contact. He doesn't chase pitches out of the strike zone. He seems to be, um, you know, have the skill set at least of an effective big league hitter in the, you know, kind of casing of, of a solid or above average defensive catcher, even though there's a lot of catcher defense we can't measure. To me, this reminds me a lot of like Russell Martin last offseason. Where the Yankees basically said, you know, you're aging, your batting average is low, we're not sure you can, you know, be a regular anymore, uh, we're not even going to offer you a two-year two contract, even though you're a very good receiver and pitchers like throwing to you, um, we just, we think we can replace you with Chris Stewart, uh, who can do what you can do for a fraction of the cost, and then Russ Martin went and like revitalized the Pirates and had a big bounce back here and was one of the main reasons why they turned themselves around. I think Hannigan could very easily go somewhere, probably not going to be as good as Martin, probably won't get as much playing time as Martin did, but could be easily be a, you know, two, maybe even three win player if given regular playing time. And a year from now, we're going to be like, man, the Reds should not have given away Ryan Hannigan. Yeah, yeah. Now, do you do you see a team uh, going after Hannigan uh, for, for the in, in um, using him as a starting catcher, or do you see uh, do you see them, you know, maybe not giving him the job? Uh, necessarily, and uh, but still deriving some value from him as a as a backup. I don't think he's going to get a full time play five day a week job. I mean, he's 33. He's coming off a bad season. Uh, I don't think anyone's going to look at him and say, "I want to give you 120 starts for the first time in your career." I do think that a team like Tampa Bay specifically would love to have him and Jose Molina as their catching tandem, and say, "We're just going to frame the crap out of you every day, all day, and these two are going to split it, split time." Uh, I think you could see the Red Sox with David Ross and Ryan Hannigan in a job share. Uh, I think you could see the Yankees adding Hannigan to Chris Stewart and um, kind of their catching tandem. Uh, I think you could even see the Blue Jays say, you know what, we've already got JPR and Sebia, who is the exact opposite of Hannigan in that he uh, has power and nothing else, uh, and we could kind of, you know, mix and match with very different skill sets. Uh, and have these two share time. I think basically the entire American League East, except for the Orioles, is going to be bidding on Hannigan, and it's going to be those four teams competing for this one player. You can see other teams getting the next two. Maybe the Phillies are in there. Uh, maybe the Braves are in there, depending on if they want a, a veteran for to kind of caddy Evan Gaddis. Um, but I think, you know, the four AL East teams make a lot of sense for what Hannigan is, and each of them are, are probably going to want to outbid their competitors for his services. Right. They want to outbid their competitors for a for a player that they can get under market value. So there's going to be a sweet spot of bidding. I yeah, assume. I mean, two, two and a half million dollars for an average, uh, you know, potentially above average catcher eh, is a pretty good deal. Right, 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 right. Uh, let's see. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, that, that's it. Oh, that's, that's a half hour. That's, uh, that's, uh, oh, well, wait, wait, we didn't, uh, sorry, yeah. I apologize. Uh, tr- uh, do you know what I'm going to bring up? I, I have no idea. Troy Tuwitzki, Cardinals. I mean, so the Cardinals probably uh, need a shortstop. There are there yes. are there are rumors that uh, there are rumors that uh, the Cardinals and Rockies might talk about uh, exchanging Troy or sending you know having Troy Tuwitzki sent to the Cardinals for you know whoever whoever I mean you know the uh, Cardinals have a bunch of prospects so um, I'm sure they could figure out something. But is this uh, is is this imminent or is this uh, 
Just something that you're going to hear about because it's November. This is speculation, uh, but it's primarily speculation being driven by Ken Rosenthal, who in the past has speculation has turned into exact trades. A few years ago, I remember most notably, he wrote some column on like a Thursday afternoon or something, suggesting that there was some chance that Cliff Lee could be moved in a three-way trade uh, where the Phillies would move Cliff Lee because they didn't think they could re-sign him. And at the time, it seemed ridiculous uh, because the Phillies were contending and Cliff Lee was very good and there was no real reason to think that the Phillies would trade Cliff Lee and why would it need to be a three-way trade? And then like 24 hours later, uh, the Phillies traded Cliff Lee in a three-way trade and it was very clear that Rosenthal knew exactly what was going on but uh, ensconced his news in the uh, uh, kind of package of, a, of a speculation and said, here's a thing that could happen, and then it was a thing that was happening. <laughs> so whenever Ken Rosenthal starts speculating like this, people think like, hey, maybe he knows something, and maybe uh, he's working off some information that he's not allowed to say, so he's just speculating instead. Right, so uh, so it would not you, – you would not be absolutely surprised, given Rosenthal's report, if we were to find out within the next 48 hours that uh, there was – there were some serious talks going on between those two teams. I mean, the general manager's meetings are happening right now, so all the GMs are in one place. Uh, so I'd say it's pretty likely that John Mazalak and Bill Gavitt are going to get together uh, and say, you know what, hey, we need a shortstop, you need stuff, we've got stuff, are you interested? And Gavitt's probably going to say no. And then, the, and then Mazalak's going to say, well, would you be interested if it was Matt Adams and Carlos Martinez? and some other nifty little things that you might like. And Gavitt's going to say, yeah, probably not. And then, you know, maybe Trevor Rosenthal's name comes up. And then, you know, maybe Gavitt says, well, we'll, we'll talk later. I mean, my guess is this is not going to happen. I don't think that the Cardinals are going to meet the Rockies' asking price. I don't think the Rockies actually want to move to Lewitsky. Uh, but I think at the same time, they probably recognize that if they can pull off a Herschel Walker trade, um, or maybe more recently like an Eric Bedard trade or a Mark Teixeira trade, uh, that would be in the best interest of their franchise, and if the Cardinals are willing to just go bananas for Troy Tulowitzki, um, they should let them. I don't think the Cardinals are are that kind of organization that's going to just cripple their future in exchange for one player, especially when there are, all, are alternatives. So my guess is like the Cardinals would put an offer on the table that the Rockies would not seem to be open to, and then that will be the end of that. Do you think that it's possible that Ken Rosenthal has information about a potential deal uh, because his son is a closer for the Cardinals. Because his, I'm sorry, what, what did you say? That because Ken Rosenthal's son is a closer for the Cardinals. Trevor Rosenthal. Oh yes, you made the you made the Rosenthal joke. Sorry, your yeah. uh, connection broke up slightly. It was uh, a hilarious yeah, joke. Uh, it was a hilarious joke. It was, yeah. and uh, I have killed it by not hearing it. So maybe maybe we should just edit this part of the podcast. Yeah. I'm going to tell you what to do. Cut this part <laughs> of the podcast, Carson. All right, I've, I've taken that to heart, uh, but I've probably forgotten that advice minutes after we get off the phone. Uh, so anyway, right. uh, very good. Uh, yeah, you're you're okay then. Uh, but so I, I'm going to say thank you. That's what I'm going to say. Thank you, Dave Cameron. Thanks, Carson. Yeah, that's Dave Cameron, uh, managing editor of Fangraphs. I'm Carson Sestouli, and uh, this has been Fangraphs Audio.